This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Anyway, it turns out it's all possible, but uh, it requires me accepting lifetimes as the argument to the macro definition, and you can't do that in Rust right now, so I'm currently trying to change the Rust compiler to allow lifetimes as arguments to macros. What's a lifetime? Shitty cable network. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. We did it. What did we do? It's faster than a SQL string. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I that saw nonsense that. Nonsense that I've been I've been spouting is theoretically possible for months. It's finally like actually in master. That's pretty awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I I checked the benchmark and and the uh, round trip benchmark against the empty database, which is usually my like this is roughly the overhead of our query builder benchmark runs. Uh, the different the delta was ninety one percent. So what is that? Is that like eleven times faster? Uh, yeah, math. Something I don't like know. that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So are these like apples to apples? So you're you're doing a SQL query on an empty database with a SQL string, and then doing the query builder. The query builder is also doing other stuff that you wouldn't do with a query with a string, right? Right. So like doing prepared statements. Right. I mean, and so this is apples to apples, right? So it's it's caching the prepared statement. If we turn off prepared statement caching on the SQL string side, then it's like uh, 12 times faster, the, the query builder compared to the, the SQL string. Right. Right. So, so first of all, this is accepting the prepared statement caching is faster than not doing the prepared statement caching. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it's just, um, so the first time you execute a query, it will be slightly slower. And then the second time you do that same query, it will be faster because we can look up the prepared statement faster with the type that we get from the query builder than we could with a SQL string. Right. And you get all the other stuff which we've been talking about, all the safety right. and knowing that your SQL is valid. Oh, I forgot, to, I forgot to mention that in the commit message. Yeah, because when I wrote the little benchmark to test uh, the, the SQL string thing, <laughs> I had to rerun the benchmark like five or six times because I kept on having like minor errors in the SQL string. <laughs> <laughs> So that's awesome. That's been like a not a very long road, really. I'm sure it seems like a long road for you, but like from the outside, like when did the, this first started being a thing? Like six months ago, something like that, probably. Yeah, I mean, well, the 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 prepared statement thing. I think we first talked about not even that long ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just meant I meant Diesel as a as a library, right? Oh, y, yeah. Yaqb back in the day. Right. <laughs> no, it's just nice because it's like. When I don't have the benchmarks to back it up, it sounds crazy. Right. And so it's just nice to sort of have it be like, no, actually, this theoretical thing that I thought maybe would be a thing is actually a thing now. <laughs> well, I think you did a good job of explaining it as well. I think it was the episode you did with, with, with Lila where you were excited about this possibility in particular. And I think you did a good job of it. We'll link to that in the show notes if I got the episode right. But we'll find out whatever episode was and we'll link to it in the show notes if you're curious about how the hell... This is even remotely possible that having some sort of layer between the query you're running in the database is somehow faster than just running the query against the database. Then you should listen to that because Sean does a good job of explaining that. But yeah. that's awesome. And there's also, uh, we'll link to the pull request in the show notes. There's benchmarks and, and some decent explanation in there as well. Cool. Hacker News didn't like it though. No, they didn't like your benchmarks? Well, they, they they just didn't bite. I thought I thought uh, like that it would make like a great hacker news bait title, and mm. they didn't bite. 
Yeah, you can never tell. <laughs> I've given up. How about our programming? Our Sub- programming? The subreddit. Oh, I, I you know I should I should submit to this uh, to our programming. I didn't I didn't try. Yeah. I think, that, I think you'd have some more success there. And then maybe, yeah, maybe somebody else would bring it on to Hackers News for you or something. <laughs> what else are you been up to? Uh, when's, my started... Rails, when's my Rails 5 coming? So, <laughs> okay, well, I'll let me answer those questions individually. Okay, let me take the first uh, part first. The first part, uh, I've also been live streaming open source, and that's been pretty fun. And oh, I've yeah, been we stuck on that. On a regular basis, uh, which, but it's been cool, and I'm, uh, I'm going to try and make it like a regular thing. How many people do you get tuning in? Well, I've only done it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I I, de- I decided, basically, my friend Ashley tweeted that she liked this trend of people doing this. I'm like, you know what? That actually sounds kind of cool. I should try that. So I tweeted, I'm, I'm going to do this in an hour. And then I got like, on average, I, I don't remember the exact stats. It was like on average 12 or something people. And it was a total of 80 people overall. And then the next day I decided to do it again. But I gave a little bit more warning and I got on average 30 people and now I've had 800 views overall, which isn't a big number, but it's like, hey, cool, 800 people were interested in watching at least some portion of me randomly working on open source. That's interesting. That's... I'm actually going to do it again as soon as we're done recording this. Yeah. And people used to do like peep code. That was the thing, right? They eventually got bought by Pluralsight, I feel like. I might yeah. be making this up. Well, there's, there's livecoding.tv as well. Right. Which from what I understand is Twitch, but for this. But what I was thinking is like this site, I think it was Peepcode, but I'm not positive. Um, they used to have like a series where they would do like much more heavily produced, but like they would have people come in and be like, this is how, you know, Aaron Patterson works. Oh, um, yes, yes, that was them. And then um, Peer to Peer is the other one that does that. Yeah. So I think that's, I think it's interesting just from that. Like, even if I'm not interested in the technology that they're doing, like just watching how people do their work and if it's different than me. You know, just might be interesting to see some of that. So when you when I saw you do that, I was like, oh, I should probably do. I should try that on like a Friday, or yeah. something where I'm really gonna do open source stuff. I'm working on the workshop I'm giving at RailsConf now, so I don't really want to stream that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I should give that a shot. But well, that's the thing, right? I'm like, I'm like, maybe I should just do this way more often because since I do open source full time, I could in theory do it like all the time. But usually it's me doing issue triage, and I feel like. <laughs> Sean tells people on the issues tracker why their issue is not really an issue for two hours is not a uh, super interesting thing to watch. <laughs> right. But yeah, I guess I, I, I didn't really think too much about the service. People have mentioned that there are alternatives. Like, I guess I could also do it through YouTube directly. I just did Twitch because it's like I'm streaming a video and I can't imagine that the video streaming service tuned for programmers is actually going to affect the, uh, the video streaming portion of it. Right. And the and I already had a Twitch account. Like Twitch used to not specifically not allow this type of thing, and recently they've kind of made a play to like, yeah, go ahead, stream you working on your computer. It doesn't have to be a video game. <laughs> it is the video game is called Creative. <laughs> uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Rails Five was the, uh, the other thing. Yeah. So I've stubbornly refused to give up on on getting an RC by RailsConf. Okay. Uh, given that I'm like the one, the one who had, the only one who has who hasn't given up on that, we'll see if it actually happens. But I started going through the issues tracker again, and it's like three or four that are rack things that have been fixed upstream that's just waiting on a release. And there's a bunch that are related to uh, exposing the the new API for hooking into having a shared lock against code reloading. And so all of this be, became necessary for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have we're, we're, we use a threaded server by default now in development mode. Puma by default, right? Uh, and that's because action cable is a thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then 
We also have active job run in an async adapter by default. Right. Uh, and that was partially tests. because you could, because you had concurrent Ruby. Partially because we could, and partially just because you can write consistent environment. That, right. Yeah. What that meant was uh, active job was now much more likely to run in scenarios where code would be auto loaded or live reloaded. And same with action cable. And it was just much more likely for code to be reloaded or auto-loaded in a multi-threaded context than it was before. So most of these problems existed before. There just wasn't a way for you to hook into it and, uh, and, and try to make auto-loading quote-unquote thread safe. So what we did was we exposed... Basically, the goal of this was to hook into not just this reloading lock, but other things that traditionally take place over the, over the uh, scope of a single request-response cycle. But instead, maybe you want to apply to a single unit of work. For example, uh, managing active record connections and, and releasing them back to the pool when you're done. So what you can do now is if you need to specifically be protected against code reloading and you're not in some context this has already been handled, you can do rails.application.reloader.wrap and then you give that a block. And you'll be guaranteed that no auto-loading will, will occur while you're in that block unless... Uh, you are the one who requested to autoload it, and you're the only thread. That, and, and if you request to autoload something, you can be guaranteed that you're not messing with any other threads, assuming they also went through this API. Uh, and then if you just want to hook into some of the other stuff like Active Record Connection Managing, then you can do rails.application.executor.wrap. And that will do things like attempt to release the connection back to the connection pool at the end of that unit of work. Okay. So previously, you would check out a connection for the entirety of a request? And now you can not do that? Right. No, Rails still... So Rails was already doing that for a request. What we've done is we've moved it to things other than requests. Okay, so if you had a background job that needed an active record database connection, now you can release that? Wasn't That wasn't happening before? No, it was happening before, but we had <laughs> explicit code to handle it there. Okay, and right. now it's pulled up into an actual API that anybody can use. Because we okay. ended up now, we, ha we end up with a third case, right? Mm -hmm. Now action cable stuff needed to not flood the connection pool. Right. An active job was already kind of something that, that was a little bit closer to action dispatch, so it wasn't too hard for it to hook into some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, this is, so NAS has led to several bugs, though. Right. So the first one being we originally ran integration tests through this same framework, because an integration test is a unit of work, and we want to do things like make sure that the active record connection is consistent throughout that uh, entire integration test. But if on the other side of the uh, integration test you have, let's say, Capybara running a adapter that needs to run the server in a different thread, and it is properly using the API, but then something tries to auto-load, you, you end up with a deadlock because your thread will uh, your test thread, which holds the, the shared lock, mm -hmm. will be blocking on the request finishing. And the right. request, the thread that the request is running on is blocking on your test thread, giving it up so that it can auto-load to finish the request. So this is in a scenario where you're using Capybara with a JavaScript web driver Correct. to run your tests. So you have multiple threads. Right. And there's really not much we can do here. I'm <laughs> thinking, like, Capybara sort of knows in this case, right? It, it, it's using the API correctly, except for that it, it's in a scenario where it knows that it's going to be prone to deadlocks. And so I'm thinking... Or maybe it's the responsibility of Rails and integration tests. But in one of those two places, I think it's just the responsibility of one of the callers to understand if code gets auto-loaded, it will deadlock. And so it needs to eager load before it enters that context. 
I'm not sure whether Rails should do that for all integration tests or whether Capybara should do that whenever it's running. Probably Capybara should do it when it's running a multi-threaded server. Or not even a multi-thread server, but when it's running the, the, the test server on a different thread. Because that's, like, that's the only case where it matters here. Right now, and so this is where a bunch of bugs on, on the issues tracker, though, occurred. Because we got that bug, right? That bug report where Capybara caused deadlocks. Even though Capybara was doing, doing the right thing, at least as, as much as we had described it. So that was a thing. Um, but... Oh, and of course, like the fact that this wasn't an issue in 4.2 actually shows how horrendously unsafe all of this was. Because in the only, like basically the only reason this didn't ever cause problems is because even though Capybara was running the server in, in a different thread, it's kind of sort of effectively could be single threaded because any time code was running in Rubyland on the server, your code in the test was blocking um, waiting for the request to finish. Right. But if they were ever executing in parallel and auto-loading occurred, your test or your server could have accessed a partially loaded class. Mm-hmm. So now, but anyway, so now, right, we introduced locking and now everything has deadlocked. So in response to the Capybara bug, we basically stopped wrapping integration tests in this executor. But now that means that the connection attempts to get returned to the pool when the request finishes. And if you are not using Capybara with multiple threads, that means you're probably uh, using um, a transaction to isolate that test. So this leads to the bug report. Um, delivering uh, mail causes tests to fail. Uh, and what's actually happening there is calling deliver later is spinning up another unit of work. So another connection gets established. And so when the, con- when the connection from your test thread gets returned to the pool, it's not guaranteed that when you try to check the connection out two seconds later, that it will actually be the same connection. Okay. And it's assuming that it will be the same connection? Uh, it was assuming before that it just wasn't getting returned to the pool. Because, um, okay. So before this, what was happening? So this the is where it done, gets really... Before it was done in line, because in develop, most likely it was done in line because your active job queue was set to perform the jobs in line. Well, no, before there, before this happened in a middleware, and that middleware just checked if end rack test was set. Okay. And this is where it gets really funky, and where, and where like, there's a really not a great solution here. So I've got, a, I've got multiple pull requests open that approach it from different ways right now that we're still sort of discussing what the best approach is. Because the, the problem is the place is actually happening is in the, or was happening, and it's still happening. But what, so it was happening in the query cache middleware. Now it's still happening in code related to the query cache, but that's no longer middleware. And first of all, I'm like, this seems like an odd responsibility for the query cache thing. Uh, and then the second problem is, like, it's making all kinds of assumptions that are untrue. It's, it's basically making it the assumption that it owns the, this connection. Because, as you know, everything comes down to ownership semantics uh, when you talk to a Rust programmer. <laughs> but so, like, what probably would have been best for it to have originally done is, A, be a middleware that was explicitly responsible for this one thing. So that the ecosystem wouldn't have clear semantics as to when the connection establishing occurred. And basically have it be the middleware would check before going down the stack if a connection was already established. If a connection is not already established, establish one from the pool. And then at the end of it, if the connection wasn't established when we started, release it back to the pool. But the important thing being if we already had a connection when we got there, do nothing. Okay. Because something above us owns that connection. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think we can do that now because we've not had clear semantics on this in the past. And it's way too easy in my mind to have a connection accidentally get leaked that way. Because uh, some middleware that you know, does something that accesses the database, but it happens before query cache. 
because nobody would think like, oh, and I need to make sure I happen after query cache. I guess in theory, they would have been leaking connections if they did something after the request finished that would have established a connection. But eh. anyway, so <laughs> the change I proposed was basically we check if a transaction is open and don't return the connection to the pool if a transaction is open because that's the, that's the closest thing that we can get to indicate whether something above us owns the connection or not. Mm-hmm. And in theory, there should be no way for the transaction to be left open and the connection be poisoned or something like that. All right. <laughs> if the connection is poisoned, it'll get returned to the pool um, when something reaps connections from uh, dead threads anyway. This sounds sketchy. <laughs> yes. Well, so um, the, real, the real solution here, like, like this is a symptom, right? The real problem right. is... I guess this isn't a symptom. This is tangential to the real problem of auto-loading and thread safety. Yes. And the problem is actually solving that problem is impossible. Because the, 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 the quote-unquote correct solution would be if we had a single thread that was entirely responsible only for auto-loading. And when, a thread needed to, when another thread needed to auto-load something, it would communicate with this thread via multi-producer single-consumer channel and block until that class is finished auto-loading. The problem there is that doesn't solve that doesn't solve the case where we have a thread uh, hit a partially loaded constant, so it doesn't go through const missing. We have no way to detect that. Basically, for things to for us to have you automatically hook into auto loading without us doing anything or without you having to do anything, you always have to hit const missing. But the whole point of auto loading is that you might not hit const missing if it's partially loaded. So what we so like the proper solution requires making a thread temporarily act like a fork. Like, if we have in this thread, it go, okay, I'm going to start autoloading something, isolate my constant namespace so that changes can still be made, but it's not visible to other threads, but then at some point be able to say, okay, now release this back into all the other namespaces. That's what we need, but that's not possible. Hmm. Yeah, autoloading has been a thing. Like, I remember years and years ago reading stuff from, like, Matt directly saying, like, don't use, don't autoload. <laughs> and every, I think everything in the standard library was cleaned up to not autoload, but Rails still uses autoload quite a bit. Right. Well, Rails also kind of defines its own autoloading. Yeah, it does code reloading and things like that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I mean it's <laughs> like because we're you know the, the benefit of require being that require can detect when it's partially finished. Right. Yeah. And like just the can like part of me wants to be like, well, let's just get rid of it all entirely. But like, do you really want to start and stop your server? <laughs> Every time you make a change to a file, well, we, we we could have code reloading still work. Like code reloading doesn't require auto loading to work. Code reloading requires the ability to undefine constants. Okay. If we were right. if we were just explicitly using require everywhere, auto loading could totally still work, or code reloading could still work. So why not require everywhere instead? Because David thinks require is dumb. Okay, but like we're we're seeing very very big problems from using auto load, right? Sure. Okay, so Rails 5 removed auto-loading. Okay. Migrating to, migrating to Rails 5 requires adding require to every file in your application. Um, like think, about, think about an application like Shopify. They would just never migrate. Why do you need to do it to every file? Because like, can't you just have, you, couldn't you have like application.rb require all of the files in your application? Well, that's eager loading. That's the, that fixes everything. Like that's, we do that in production. Okay, that makes, so let's that makes, do that. Right. So too slow? Now, yes. Too slow in development, basically. Yes. Right. And hmm. in tests. Right. And Spring doesn't help uh, in the case of code reloading there because we actually need to reload the code. Right. Hmm. 
bummer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like I want it when this conversation started, when you were like, yeah, we're having all these problems because, you know, things are now more concurrent and blah, blah, blah. My reaction was, oh, okay, when he stops, I'm going to talk about how, like, this wouldn't have happened if Action Cable was a gem. But it still would have happened for people using that gem. And it also, like, as you explained, it was kind of just an accident of the way things typically run that this hasn't been a problem earlier. Right. Right. So, all right, I guess I can't blame Action Cable. <laughs> no, I mean, it, yeah, it just comes down to we either need explicit require or eager loading to truly solve the problem. But I don't mind explicit require. I think explicit require is awesome. But that's not a change that we can even begin to consider. Right. I wonder how much time that would add to the startup. It scales linearly with application time. Right. Or with application App size. size I mean, right. For something like Shopify, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, even for most applications, like there's a reason that we don't turn on config eager load equals true in tests. Right. And I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be like deciding like, well, do I want to extract a class here? Well, then I'd have to require it. It's going to take too long. I'll just. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> if you just take, we'll we'll just add a build step that just concatenates all of the classes into a single file, and you just require that one file, and you're good. Well, but it's, it would also remove the ability for like. You know how you can just require the explicit models that you need in your tests. Yep. And like if you don't, and you know if you don't require environment.rb, right, everything's way faster. Yep. We'd lose the ability to do that if we if we had to eager load in all of our tests. Right. Oh well. <laughs> Good luck yeah. with that. Uh, yeah. So that seems to be the major thing that's standing between us and Rails five release candidate one. That's the big one. If so, the downside to this problem is that this problem is impossible to solve. <laughs> but the nice thing <laughs> Seems about like it a is large like downside, yes. <laughs> but at the end of the day, right, the deadlocking case, there's nothing we can do about. Something needs to ear load there, which that's kind of fine. We're in an integration test. You're you're effectively going to end up hitting your entire application anyway. The other case where a thread isn't using the lock at all and hits partially loaded constants, we can't detect when they hit the partially loaded cons constant. But what we can do is perform a check whenever something tries to eager load or auto load. And if you aren't holding the lock, then raise an exception unless you've set some, no, seriously, I know what I'm doing. And for some reason, I need to use auto-loading without, without this lock being held. And so as long as, you, as long as you hit constant missing at least once before the concurrency problem occurs, then we can detect that. And then the other symptoms of this, the things like the active record connection stuff, like there's no nice solution there. That one's just because really, really terrible semantics in the past, and it's hard to introduce these semantics later on. But, like, there's solutions there and uh, to, to that symptom of the problem. And at the end of the day, right, if we treat all the symptoms as they crop up, like, the problem might be impossible, but we can keep on treating the symptoms. And so we can do that, and most of them have pretty straightforward solutions, it seems like, and there's a, a huge cluster of issues on the milestone that are just all permutations of this, so they'll all go away. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the remaining issues are mostly pretty straightforward. Okay. Get to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be cool to get a release candidate because it's like, I don't know, it, it felt so close like two months ago. <laughs> yeah. And it dragged on. And I'm usually a pessimist about when these things are going to ship and it's dragged on even longer than we had thought. But And this is why I want to I change the release process, right? Because um, right? like we could have just shipped with or without action cable if okay, fine, we missed, uh, Action Cable isn't ready to go for this one. It's still in master, it's behind, it's behind the feature flag, you can't use it in the, in the release gem, and it'll be out in three months. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, as we discussed, these problems were problems anyway. Yes. But more likely to be flexed using something like Action Cable. Well, and also with the API exposed. Right. To exacerbate them, I guess. Right. Because the Capybara case existed with or without Action Cable. Yep. Like, there's, there's nothing about anything that we've changed that makes the Capybara case new. Other than that, now we've given Capybara the API to protect itself. And as it turns out, when it protects itself, that deadlocks because you can't actually protect yourself in this scenario. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Anyway, it'll get there. Um, it just, you know, we're, 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 we're way more down on manpower. Person than power. Than we have been. Hmm? Person, Person power. power. Sorry. <laughs> just you know, fewer people working on it? Just fewer people. Uh, a bunch of the people who are really, you know, like doing a lot day to day are not around these days. So mm-hmm. it's. And these are the types of problems, like the types of problems you just spent the last 20 minutes talking about are the types of problems you can't just drive by contribute to. Right. right. Like I've made, uh, you know, 20 or so drive by contributions to Rails, but this is not this is out of my comfort zone for contributing to Rails. So it needs to be somebody who has a time to be significantly invested into this. So having companies pay these people to do that uh, seems like a really good idea. <laughs> Actually, one thing that's slightly frustrating is people do keep trying to drive. I fix these. Mm hmm. And because uh, I'm slightly worried that somebody with CommitBit who's maybe a little bit less involved in this problem but just is all like, oh, the test passed and it fixes this issue, I'm going to merge it, would do that. I'm sort of having to be really diligent about all these people who are just applying Band-Aids to it. I'm like, no, we really need to not do a Band-Aid here. Right, so they're just fixing like the one thing that's broken, for that they see is broken, but not necessarily knowing what the underlying cause is or or the best way to fix it, that kind of thing. Right. right, like for example, there was a comment above the active record thing because the previous conditional was if env rack test, and now it's just in a in a scenario where it no longer has access to env. So the most obvious solution there is okay, let's just make sure env gets passed down here. Right, but uh, uh, but no, that's not the solution here. Okay, yeah, it's one of those like you have to stare at it for you know every time I work on this, it takes me five six hours straight just to really think about the problem, make heads or tails of where we're at, and try and absorb all of the permutations of what. Like what could occur here? What else? What else could be affected that we haven't seen the, the symptoms of yet? And the resulting code is often not actually a ton of code, but it it definitely yes, it definitely this is definitely the sort of thing where it's like we need full timers on open source. I'm glad that somebody's doing that. So thank you. <laughs> yes, I am too. Thanks, Shopify. <laughs> we might be we might be hiring a second Rails person to do open source full time really soon. Cool. And then they'll have you just work on diesel full time because they're exactly. going to rewrite the That's whole thing the in Rust. Plan. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been just plugging along on my client work, so I don't have too much. I've been getting more experience with Ember because there's the front end of this application is written in Ember. I have not been loving it. I want to give it a shot on something that's a little more greenfield. Like it's possible I just came into a situation where not being able to build up the whole entire understanding of the system as I build it, but like it is is impacting me, but. Maybe that's an indicator that it just seems like there's so much magic going on. Like, I don't know if I said this on the show before, but I've said this, I think, to you or to other people before that, like, it feels like, and this is something that Ian, Ian Anderson that I've worked with uh, first said, and it feels like you're kind of like plugging your code into Ember and then hoping it works. Right. <laughs> and the stack traces you end up seeing because it's JavaScript and everything like that, bear that out because you're like, I don't, what's going wrong here? I don't know. Uh, it's just a bunch of Ember stuff in the stack trace. None of my code's there. What does that mean? 
So I don't know. I'm just I expected to like it more than I do. I don't really particularly like it. Um, unfortunate. Yeah, but what I'm really looking forward to though is the rewrite that we've been doing for this for this client, um, and they're involved in it too. It's not just us doing it, but we're shipping that tonight supposedly. Cool. So that's been a year in the making for them, or like four or five months for us. And I'm super excited about that because if you're not something like a li- uh, a framework like Rails that thousands of people depend on. Shipping is the fastest way to figure out what you're supposed to do next. Yeah. So like as we've come up on this, like the, particularly the last few weeks on this project, there's been a number of bugs raised by QA people and other people that like you look at and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's I guess that's a bug. That's an edge case that we didn't considered. And that that's definitely a bug. And we should probably fix that at some point. But I know that if we released this today, nobody would care about this bug tomorrow. Like there would be five other things way more embarrassing than, you know, this like edge case in the reset password thing or whatever. Yeah, the and, case you, and you got what? Ten more months until a leap year? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, wait, we had a leap year. We had a leap year. This yeah, no, is it's leap not a leap year coming up. I was yeah. thinking until February. Yeah. Well, yeah, until this leap year birthday. So we have to deal with them. Right. But yeah, so um, I, I think that just shipping things is going to be such a relief on this application because it's going to show that like, yeah, we've made some progress in some places and here's all the stuff we broke because as we discussed on a previous show, <laughs> Rewrites are new applications, not not refactors. So I want to say rewrite the front end in Elm. Uh, I want to rewrite the front end in Elixir. This has like two Ember apps. One of them is like the web client, and the other one is an admin interface. And they just showed the admin interface for some reason, which they're launching tonight. They just showed like the new admin interface to the people who will be using the admin interface, and they were like, "Oh, this is great!" So I'm glad that they're like excited about it. But man, building an admin interface as an Ember app just seems yeah totally pointless like so much duplication of effort it's just simple it's it is crud there's one place where there's like a fancy calendar view and i was like we could have we could have built that on the server side as well uh and it would have been fine but that's the only thing that wasn't basically like like just scaffolded crud like here's a list of all the things uh with it in a table and you click on one and you show it (laughs) and you edit it changes to it (laughs) yep and like we had to, part of what we had to do for the admin interface is they have different types of admins that have different types of permissions. So the API for the admin interface has those permissions on it. So it's like you must have this permission in order to update a, you know, an account or whatever the case may be. And that's all well and good. But now we have to implement that on the front end as well to say like, well, don't show them the update account button if they don't have this permission, which is really simple to do if you were doing server rendered HTML because you know all of this information at the time of the request, right? Like you already had to get the permission information to determine whether or not they had access to the endpoint in the first place and things like that. But when you have to duplicate that effort onto the front end, again, it's just <laughs> just more duplication, right? Yeah. So yeah, I wish it was a backend app. And you know, who knows, maybe that's the next thing we say, like maybe we can start moving like the new stuff we want out of the out of the admin interface. Maybe we just start moving that to an HTML server rendered HTML. Um, but we'll see. But I'm pretty excited about launching this because, like I said, priorities will become clear. There'll be big problems, which I'm kind of, you know, I'm nervous about uh, because nobody wants there to be problems. But it'll also make it really clear what we should be working on next. Yeah. And when you get in these rewrite projects, like, I think, I don't know if we mentioned this in the rewrite episode, but just, like, getting to something you can ship as soon as possible is really, should be the goal. Yeah. And everybody, it's easy to lose sight of that. So. Yeah. Well, it's because your feedback loop goes to hell when you can't ship. 
Yep. And it's easy just to find yourself in like, well, I don't know, this is the feedback loop I've had for the last six months. So like <laughs> I push up a build and somebody finds something wrong with it. So I have to fix it because there's something wrong with it. Right. And you're like, no, well, right. there's probably something more important wrong with it that you're not aware of. So you're wasting your time working on this edge case kind of thing, which is kind of a frank way to put it. But it's, it's the way it is. Right. You're, you're probably wasting your time. There's probably a bigger problem to solve. Anyway, I think it's fine. That's where I'm at. Uh, I think it's different for something like Rails. You can't just be like, "Let's just ship." What can't we ship? Let's go. Um, I actually do want us to be more like that, though. Yeah, you could like in the process you described, you could be more like that, right? You could be right. like, "Okay, it's been six weeks. What's ready to go? What's not ready to go? Let's ship it." Right. Well, it's also about making sure that new stuff is in a position where it doesn't get shipped when Rails ships, unless we explicitly say it's ready. Yep. But yeah. Yep. Good luck. I'd love to see that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't know. We're getting. To the, I might. I might actually. I'm thinking about just writing up the whole proposal. I still need to figure out a couple of the more minute details of processes, mm-hmm. and then write up the whole proposal and start up the what will presumably be a long discussion. Mm-hmm. I was going to wait until Rails Five shipped before I did that, but I might just do it this week. I mean, it's a good example of like. W- there's so much stuff in there that people could just be using six months ago. Yeah, and they haven't been able to. Or there are deprecations and things like that that were introduced that they could have been fixing already, and now they won't be able to. Well, it's also like I have to twiddle my thumbs a lot and work on really weird stuff that I know isn't going to go into master for ages because we shouldn't be making extraneous changes on master. Yeah. But we don't want to branch off the stable branch yet until we ship the RC, but... Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, all of this is going to go into this long proposal. So here's why all this stuff was terrible. Here's a process in which we could avoid all of these problems. Where does that discussion happen? Basecamp. Okay, not on Rails. Not on Rails Core. No, that will happen on Basecamp. Mm, unfortunate. I won't be able to watch along. <laughs> um, okay, cool. We should wrap up. I think. Yeah. Okay. This episode will probably, if I have the schedule right, will air basically the Wednesday that RailsConf starts. So if you are coming to RailsConf, Sean and I will be there. Sean will be giving a presentation. I'll be doing a workshop. Come find us. Come say hello. We'd love to meet you. We'll be recording some podcasts, hopefully, again, so you can find us doing that as well. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 62. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.